Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Alone Together, the podcast that brings you helpful advice and valuable information from industry experts about the coronavirus outbreak and its impacts on our lives. In this second series of the podcast, we've covered everything from mask wearing to parenting, dating to active travel. Now with cases rising again in the UK and further new restrictions being put in place from Thursday this week, it seems that COVID-19 is not finished with us just yet. And Alone Together has been and will continue to be here to help guide you through this strange and ever-changing new normal. In this episode, we'll be discussing all things holidays. As many countries close their borders in an attempt to stop the global spread of the virus, and we are continuously advised to avoid travel unless absolutely necessary, it seems 2020 has become the year of the staycation. Yes, indeed, us Brits have traded in the usual European hotspots and exotic destinations thousands of miles away for the UK's coastal towns, rural villages and countryside. But what has this meant for Britain's local tourism industries? Chris Greenwood, Senior Tourist Insights Manager at Visit Scotland, will explain all on today's show. As um, international travel has been constrained by travel corridors and and restrictions, uh, people really have been looking towards uh, holidaying within the UK uh, this year. As you know, we also love to highlight the amazing work done by local heroes, from those who deliver food to people who are isolating, to the charities that support our most vulnerable. Coming up, Dan McLaughlin speaks to Harry Taylor, who balanced his day job with doing voluntary shifts at the Royal Free Hospital in North West London helping NHS staff during the peak of the COVID hospital admissions. So I would finish at about half past 12, getting towards one o'clock. I'd go to bed. I would then set my alarm for half past five in the morning. So I'd probably get about four and a half hours sleep. And, you know, I'd bounce out of bed, go and get the tube, get into the Royal Free at about quarter to seven in the morning. In recent times, the world has become ever smaller. No country is too far out of reach, and many of us expect to be able to travel to different exotic destinations year in, year out. I myself have been lucky in in recent years to spend extended periods of time overseas, places such as Southeast Asia, hopping from country to country, island to island, without a care or worry. The prospect of doing such a thing now seems almost out of reach. For many of us here in the UK, our summer 2020 plans of trips overseas were cancelled and many of us flocked to find somewhere available on home soil. I chatted with Senior Tourist Insights Manager for Visit Scotland, Chris Greenwood, to find out our current holiday trends, what the pandemic has meant for the UK tourist trade, 
and where he predicts the future of the tourism industry heading. Hi, Chris, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much for uh, speaking to me today. So, uh, firstly, what tourism trends have there been over the summer 2020 period? Well, I think um, 2020, uh, many people have have said this, it's been quite an unprecedented uh, year. Um, I think naturally anxiety and stress have been abundant throughout society and that has uh, coloured the way many consumers and travellers have have seen uh, many aspects of their life. Um, Some of the trends that we've seen specifically related to tourism have been um, shorter booking times, um, but Contrary to that is a lot of time spent planning holidays, so a lot of time researching, a lot of time uh, being inspired by fantastic content that tourism providers uh, are putting online. Um, But the booking times, uh, people are waiting until really the last minute uh, just to see whether it's possible for them to be able to to travel. Um, And the other Thing that's really been seen uh, this summer is uh, the popularity of domestic holidays as um, international travel has been constrained by travel corridors and, and restrictions. Uh, people really have been looking towards uh, holidaying within the UK uh, this year. So um, we've talked about holidaying in the UK. So the term staycation has been used a lot. So um you know, where people are choosing to stay in the UK um, for their holidays instead of venture abroad. So what types of staycations have been the most popular uh, in Scotland over this summer? Perhaps unsurprisingly, people have been looking to visit places they know well. Um, They're also uh, sort of being quite um, sort of conscientious and and looking not to go to places where they think they would be crowded. So they're looking for trips to open spaces, countryside, coastal areas. Uh, We've seen great popularity in in self-catering and camping and caravanning over the summer months. Um, And what we found from our kind of UK-wide consumer tracker is, uh, along with the holiday trips, you know, those pure holiday trips, people going uh, away, uh, about a third of the trips taken this summer have been people travelling to visit friends and relatives. And understandably, after many months of not seeing their loved ones, uh, that could be a, a key driver uh, for, for travel as well. So um, on the topic then um, of these staycations, um, you know, have have we seen that they have contributed to the UK economy? Uh, in Scotland, uh, tourism is worth around about uh, £10.5 billion in, in tourism expenditure. So it, it's a significant uh, part of, of, the, of the Scottish economy. Um, you know, we've had uh, four months of a complete lockdown where, you know, there's been no uh, tourism businesses and, and, and no tourism activity. Um, When we kind of look at how um, staycations contribute to the UK economy, because it's very similar, um, you know, uh, within England and Wales, as well as Scotland, what we find is the proportion of trips uh, that are taken, around about 70% of those are domestic. So that's uh, GB or or UK residents taking trips within Scotland, England and Wales, things like that. if you look at uh, international travel, around about 40% of spend is international. So 
what we'll find is that, yes, there will be a, a small decline in the number of trips taken uh, that would have been uh, international visitors. And we are still seeing international visitors. Uh, over the summer, uh, we saw that uh, key markets of uh, countries like France, Germany, the Netherlands, uh, very big touring markets, uh, caravanners, uh, campervans, things like that. Uh, they came, uh, but for Scotland, uh, North America is is our biggest uh, individual single uh, nation market. Uh, obviously, they've not been coming in the same numbers, uh, but you know, domestic holidays uh, make up the, the bulk of visitors. But I think it's going to be seen in spends where uh, international travellers generally tend to to spend more and stay longer. So hopefully what we'll see is uh, domestic visitors uh, will be taking longer breaks because they won't be taking uh, holidays abroad um, uh, and uh, staying longer and hopefully uh, spending uh, a little bit extra uh, to support tourism businesses as well. Um, and has there been a particular region um, of Scotland that has seen the highest level of tourism? I know you mentioned, obviously, we had the four months where there was no tourism, but you know, since things have sort of picked back up a little bit again, has there been a particular area that's had quite high footfall? From uh, around about May uh, of this year, uh, the, the national tourist boards of uh, England, Scotland, Wales uh, have been um, sponsoring a consumer sentiment study. So we've been going out and asking a nationally representative sample uh, of the UK population what their travel intentions were, but also what they actually did in terms of uh, planning and booking their holidays. And consistently throughout the entire period of time that, that uh, survey was running, we found that it, it was uh, rural and coastal areas that, that proved to be the most popular uh, destinations. Now, the most popular destination was uh, the southwest of England. Uh, it was uh, Devon and Cornwall. Uh, after that, it was places like the, the Highlands, uh, rural Yorkshire, and uh, the Lake District uh, proved to be the most popular places. Um, during the summer, uh, it was the, the cities, uh, the, 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 the ones that didn't seem to be as attractive as a destination. However, what we're seeing is in the, in the later versions of that tracker, were that uh, visitors were, were sort of um, expressing intent to maybe go to cities uh, during the, the, the winter months. So as we get into sort of November, December and into January, um, cities look to be a more popular destination. And you can understand that as people maybe move away from camping and caravanning, um, into the winter where the weather might be slightly different, cities might prove uh, slightly more attractive. Obviously, that doesn't take into account um, you know, the, the, the changing conditions uh, that, that, that are happening around us. Uh, and that goes into people's attitudes towards kind of the, the planning and booking and, and booking late and, and, and trying to be in, as informed as possible about what they can do uh, within the, the uh, legislation that is constantly changing. Um, and from um, what you just mentioned about those popular destinations, what were the most common activity types? So I suppose with coastal towns and rural areas, I suppose a lot of it would be sort of outdoorsy stuff like walking and things. It, it is indeed. I mean, if you think um, during lockdown, some of the, the, the uh, more popular kind of activities that, that were, were coming up. So this was when tourism wasn't going on. Um, a lot of people were taking the opportunity to, to become fitter. And we've seen cycling and uh, running uh, 
uh, being, uh, you know, like activities that have really taken off uh, amongst uh, society. Uh, cooking as well. And I think everybody has uh, tried to make banana bread at some point uh, during the last few months. Um, and also uh, sort of gardening, uh, you know, people are taking the opportunity to, to get out and really connect with nature. And that's kind of followed through into people's uh, attitudes towards um, activities as well. So uh, we found that um, because it's been rural areas, coastal areas, uh, that kind of sense of fitness, nature, well-being has, has really kind of developed further. And, and this was something that was developing pre uh, lockdown as well, uh, through to, to the end of 2019, kind of wellness and nature were becoming more and more popular amongst uh, travellers. But we've seen long distance walking and sort of like that challenge uh, of, of doing something sort of physical and achievement uh, has been quite popular. Uh, cycling in general ha has become more popular, especially with the advent of, of um, uh, electric and battery-powered bikes. Uh, but bike packing as a as a trend, where people kind of do long-distance tours, where they, they they take tents with them and cycle, uh, that's becoming more popular. And open-water swimming as well uh, ha has become increasingly popular. Um, and you know, uh, in in Scotland during 2020, uh, this is our year of coasts and waters. It was a themed year that, that was going to take place over here. So we're finding that um, coastal areas are are popular. So canoe trails, um, swimming, uh, paddle boarding, those kinds of things uh, are, are proving uh, quite popular as well. In terms of attractions, uh, it's really outdoor attractions that, that have been popular. So um, things like uh, historic sites and uh, gardens, uh, some indoor attractions uh, naturally are, are still closed. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a large portion of the attraction sector is, is based on, on volunteers. So some places haven't opened up yet, but certainly outdoor attractions uh, are proving popular. Um, and uh, we've seen some great uh, role of, in terms of innovation as well. So places like Edinburgh Zoo, for example, have been putting on uh, creating special products uh, like kind of exclusive uh, entry in the evenings. Uh, to be able to go and see some of the attractions. So uh, if you went during the day, yeah, there might be uh, some, you know, physically distanced queuing uh, to be able to go and see, uh, say, the pandas. Uh, but um, these special products where they, they put on other bits of entertainment, uh, uh, food offerings, um, you know, you can go and you can get exclusive uh, sort of tours of uh, areas of the zoo uh, that you might not get during the day. So, you know, it, People are really thinking about how they can uh, maximize the product they've got uh, within the, the, the legislation and, and restrictions uh, that, that are with us at the moment. Um, another trend that we've seen around tourism is, all, uh, is also the uh, people buying holiday homes. So say buying a holiday home in an area where they're not from, um, especially in these rural areas like the Highlands and Islands, uh, we've seen a lot of people buy houses there. So how do you think that will impact those rural communities? Well, I think what we need to do is we need to think about um, the, the, the tourism industry uh, in the, the, the frame of responsible tourism. Now, uh, responsible tourism is uh, really uh, delivering a tourism product uh, that is uh, economically viable, so it, it supports businesses and jobs. But at the same time, it also um, 
protect the, the local environment and uh, the communities that, that are present uh, you know, uh, within the areas that the tourism is taking place. And, and whilst it um, focuses a lot on rural communities, um, it, it's being able to maintain that balance. So if we've got jobs and we've got a viable tourism economy, uh, that that sort of like is is one part. But a lot of people are obviously going to these uh, secluded and remote uh, locations because of um, the, the communities that are there and also uh, the, the natural environment. And I think it, it's important that we need to remember that, yes, having holiday homes in rural areas um, does provide uh, opportunities for, for, for people in terms of uh, making businesses and, and bringing people in, but also affordable housing uh, is important so that you know we get the, the mix of people that, that, that uh, visitors want to, to go and engage with. Um, so it, it, it's really about trying to find that right balance, uh, and you know we need tourism in rural communities for their livelihoods and well-being. We also need to make sure that tourism isn't negatively impacting on those. And there are a variety of uh, activities that are going on in terms of um, investment funds that the Scottish government administers, uh, and there's also uh, a lot of engagement that uh, takes place. Uh, between the enterprise agencies and Visit Scotland uh, with community groups, tourism bodies, so that we can identify issues and address them before they become uh, a problem uh, in the future. And um, in your opinion, what are the main challenges around tourism at the moment? Uh, we know that the tourism industry has been massively affected by the pandemic. I think it's probably the, the uncertainty surrounding the future of the pandemic is probably still the greatest challenge. Especially as we move out of the summer, which is our kind of usual peak season, um, we need to see uh, how uh, the changing legislation that, that's coming in as we try to manage uh, the coronavirus is going to impact on, on businesses. Um, and I think it, it's also uh, the need for businesses to be able to be agile and innovative uh, and be able to see the opportunities. Uh, and, and some of that can be through the adoption of uh, digital channels and technology. Others about um, understanding who their visitor is, what their product is, and how they can adapt those to be able to maximize uh, what they deliver uh, in the best way possible. And I go back to uh, the, my earlier points around um, responsible tourism and just making sure that, um, yeah, Maintaining that the economic viability of tourism is vitally important, but tourism is also delivered through having a uh, a good local environment and sustainable communities. And the three of those elements need to be held in balance. Um, otherwise, uh, we, we can sort of like you know tip over uh, into a, a more negative um, sort of direction. But uh, really, I think uh, the other challenges uh, have certainly been in urban areas. Um, we saw, obviously, that the Edinburgh Festival uh, were, was, was cancelled this year, and, and that's been a major blow. Also, events and uh, sort of like larger gatherings, uh, music festivals and things, um, those seem to be, you know, uh, taking time to, to, to come back on uh, as well. So... Uh, I would like to think that as we move into next year uh, and uh, society starts 
being able to adapt and live with coronavirus in, in, in some way. And, and we're moving forward in a positive direction, but we'll be able to address some of these challenges in, in, in a positive direction. And uh, back to our earlier points around uh, staycations in the UK uh, during the pandemic, obviously they've been really popular at the moment, but how can we attract them for future holidays when travel is more available again and people might want to jet off to places like America or Asia, other places like that? Oh, well, I mean, we've been using this time to encourage people to explore what's on their doorstep. So uh, there's been uh, the Visit Scotland uh, Only in Scotland campaign, highlighting unique experiences that can only be had uh, right here in Scotland. Uh, and, and Visit Britain, uh, in partnership with uh, all the national tourist boards, including Visit Scotland, is currently running the Escape the Everyday campaign um, across the UK. Uh, and, and, and again, it, it, it's trying to highlight to the domestic market the, the, how brilliant uh, domestic tourism can be. Now, there are many people uh, within the UK who are taking holidays at home uh, for, for the first time. Uh, we know that uh, the UK market is one of the biggest uh, international uh, traveling markets in the world. I mean, if you think how um, the, 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 you know, the Spanish um, tourism uh, market is, is suffering from not having UK travellers going there. It just tells you the size and scale uh, that the, the British travellers have uh, on the global travel market. But I think this is a fantastic opportunity for the people to really sort of see what we do have on our doorstep. And yes, it would be a different uh, tourism product uh, to what they might have if they go abroad. But I think it certainly opens up people's options to, to maybe think more responsibly uh, about their travel. Uh, and be able to explore uh, their local region, to be able to support uh, tourism businesses uh, that, that are here in the UK. And maybe when international travel comes back online, that we'll be able to see maybe a, a blended approach of people taking international trips and domestic trips, or indeed uh, deciding on what they want to do in terms of you know, activity breaks, relaxation breaks, and, and really seeing what provides the, the, the best value for money and values uh, for, for the money uh, that we have. And uh, finally, where do you see the future of UK tourism heading in a post-COVID world? So we've heard that technology may play a role in this as well. Yeah, I, I think uh, definitely we're, we're, we're at the, the point now where uh, technology is going to play a significant role. And uh, there's a, a new Travel Tech Scotland initiative uh, as an example of uh, the organisation working with the tourism industry to ensure that technology is going to be our heart of future plans. Um, I think what we need to remember is that, you know, from um, the, the, the start of this century, you know, from 2000. Um, tourism uh, has really seen some significant uh, bumps in the road, uh, along with some uh, fantastic uh, opportunities. If you think uh, going back to 9-11, um, a button mouth back in uh, 2001, um, there was the, the uh, economic uh, crisis that we saw in 2008. We even had an Icelandic volcano grounds uh, international aircraft over Europe uh, for, for several months. Uh, and, and all of these uh, have a, a, a shockwave uh, through tourism uh, in, the, in the UK uh, and um, 
further afield. But tourism kind of has this tendency to bounce back. Uh, people like to travel. Uh, people find that it, it provides a transformational experience to them. So I, I, I see uh, a, a, you know, tourism recovering. Um, and I, I kind of see that uh, what we need to do is take this as an opportunity uh, to, to really kind of revolutionize how we view tourism so that uh, it becomes uh, responsible. It adopts more technology. I mean, think about uh, kind of post-2008, we, we, we got Uber, uh, we got WhatsApp, we got TripAdvisor, we got um, you know, things like that that really revolutionized how we see tourism. So um, I think the future is all to, to play for. And uh, Scotland is one of those top five uh, go-to, play, go-to places uh, for innovation in terms of European travel technology. So, uh, yeah, I think... Um, whilst at the moment things uh, are, are a challenge, uh, the, the opportunity is there uh, for the recovery. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Then that was very insightful and interesting to hear about uh, the tourism industry right now and, and where we're headed in the future. No, thank you very much. It's been a great opportunity. That was my interview with Senior Tourist Insights Manager for Visit Scotland, Chris Greenwood. So, uh, Chris provided some great insights there, Matt. What do you think about? this trend of the staycation and, and what this will mean for future holidays? Wow, it, it is a tough one, isn't it? Because I think it's opened our eyes as to what is available within the UK. Some incredible, beautiful places. Growing up, I went to Cornwall every year um, as, as a child, you know, throughout even in, into my teens, going on family holidays. Such a beautiful place in the world. I know that although I've never been there, the Highlands in Scotland are, are supposed to be some of the most picturesque um, you know, places in the world. Um, same for for parts of of Wales. You know, the Gower, uh, the Brecon Beacons. There's so many beautiful places right on our doorstep that maybe we wouldn't have ventured to before. Which is a great thing that we're able to experience these. On the other hand, however, there's you know there's only a small amount of of these incredible places compared to the amount of people that want to go and visit them. So we you know we have seen these these smaller you know, seaside towns and rural villages being overloaded with tourists, uh, so to speak, and at a time where we have to be careful of um, how many people we come into contact with and risks of spreading the virus and so on. It's a, it's a difficult balance to make. Yeah, I think that, like you say, it's definitely opened our eyes to what's available here. I definitely, you know, this summer I went to Brighton and Bournemouth which was really nice um, and it was great. We got some good weather as well, some sun and it was it was a nice holiday. And Matt, you went away as well um, in the UK this summer, didn't you? Yeah, I've, I've, I've been lucky to have a couple of trips. Um, ventured to Breen, uh, which I've never been to before, but is kind of one of the nearest coastlines to uh, to Birmingham uh, where I where I live. Not not too sure I'd go again. It wasn't, you know, sorry to anyone who, who is from Breen. It, it wasn't really me, but, uh, you know, a wonderful beach that's, that's stretched for miles and miles and miles. So that, that, that was good fun. And then um, I also ride motorcycles and uh, spent some time going, uh, going across Wales not too long ago. So that was good fun as well. Now, on Alone Together, we also like to highlight the amazing charitable work done by individuals and organisations big and small during the coronavirus pandemic. The local heroes amongst us who have gone the extra mile and done their bit to keep our local communities going. Alone Together's Dan McLaughlin spoke to Harry Taylor, who tells us how he balanced working night shifts at The Guardian 
and doing voluntary shifts at the Royal Free Hospital in northwest London, helping to give out scrubs to NHS staff during the peak of COVID hospital admissions. Many people's lockdown experiences have been varied. Some people stayed at home, some people still had to work. And you decided to use your lockdown uh, to help your community. What exactly did you do? So I I gave out scrubs at the World Free Hospital um, in Hampstead, which is in northwest London. Um, I so I've worked throughout lockdown. I work at nights uh, on the Guardian subbing desk. And when the pandemic hit, you know, of course, like a lot of people, wanted to do something to help. Now we were told by the government the best thing we can do to help was to sit at home and to do nothing, to you know, stay at home, save lives, protect the NHS, etc. And it's very counterintuitive because to help someone or to help do something is a positive action. And it was a weird feeling to be told to, to actually to help was to sit at home. So about late April, I saw an advert, uh, I think it was on social media, that the Royal Free were looking for volunteers. I put myself forward. By this point, I'd already signed up to the NHS the national scheme where I think they wanted three quarters of a million volunteers and hadn't had anything come back through that. So, yes, it started late April and finished uh, mid-late August. So, d- describe your day. You were still working. I was still working, and I, I work at night. So, I would usually finish. We're all working from home at this point on The Guardian. So, I would finish at about half past 12, getting towards one o'clock. I'd go to bed. I would then set my alarm for half past five in the morning. So, I'd probably get about four and a half hours sleep. And, you know, I'd bounce out of bed, go and get the tube get into the Royal Free at about quarter to seven in the morning. I, you know, we would go, we'd prepare the cages of scrubs. So the scrubs and things, if you watch Casualty or Holby City or anything like that, they're the sort of pastel coloured over clothes they put on. It's not the plastic PPE that we've seen in um, on TV. It's the blue or red or green type over clothes that they wear. So we prepare the cages of those and take them up to the relevant floor in the hospital and as doctors and nurses came on shift we'd hand them out you know, we'd get the queue and we'd say you know what size are you and we'd give them all out and we'd get through a couple of hundred a day and it would go from seven o'clock until around about quarter past half past nine in the morning and then i'd go home and get on with the rest of my day on four hours sleep on four hours i mean i, I must I, you know I, I must give in um in mitigation this was three times a week I'd always do always do a Monday, always do a Thursday morning, and always do a Saturday morning. So it wasn't as though it was every day I was on four hours sleep. At the Guardian, I work four nights on, three nights off. So it wasn't um, you know a normal five five and two type pattern. But yeah, four and a half hours sleep. But the weird thing was I would bounce out of bed, particularly early on, because it was the chance to do something, and particularly during lockdown when everything became so shapeless and so beige and every day felt like Sunday in the words of one famous um, singer it was good to get a bit of structure and to and almost wake up in the morning and go off to work obviously I wasn't working I was volunteering but to have a bit of a purpose well you saw the advert and you, you said you want to do it and you said it's given you a purpose uh, what are the reasons why, why did you want to do this well I, I think you know, my nature generally, I mean, I, I, I spent two and a half years as a reporter on a local paper in North London. And one of the reasons I got into journalism, um, believe it or not, was to try and help people. You get all sorts of people coming forward with a lot of time at the end of their tether. 
And it's a privilege to be able to help them, to be able to hold councils or governments or companies to account on their behalf and to help them. So I wanted to do something to help people. It had, you know, it's not to blow my own trumpet, but it's the sort of thing I like to try and do. It's why I got into journalism. And then as fantastic as the job that Guardian I do is, it's very much a process job. I'm no longer reporting. on. I'm not reporting on a national level. So it gave me the chance to go out and help and to do something. It was a time when it's, people are very anxious about, and still are anxious about catching, you know, COVID-19. And you decided to go to a place where it was probably the, <laughs> the worst place to try and catch it. How did that feel? Yeah. <laughs> it's a very good question. When I told my family back home, so from the West Midlands originally, where my family um, still live, I saw my mom and saw my sister. My sister's reaction was that she thought I was mad. And I suppose it probably was, but it was, I mean, what was really interesting was when I first started, because it was late April, there were, there were no masks on the tube. There were no masks, mandatory, you know, compulsory masks in, on the tube. There were no compulsory masks in hospitals. Um, it was a very different environment now. So if you walk into either arena on public transport or in, or in any medical clinics or hospitals, don't know, it didn't really bother me. I mean, I, at the start of the pandemic, I was pretty worried. And I must admit, I thought I'd probably end up dead. Um, but that was probably because I thought it was going to be a, a Spanish flu-type pandemic where millions of us would all die. I, yeah, it did come into my thinking, but I didn't, it, I didn't, it didn't dissuade me. You know, I took necessary precautions. I used hand sanitizer. I didn't use masks on the shoe um, or in the hospital until we were told to. I'll be completely honest. Because um, I, I, for better or for worse, I trust that the government has taken those decisions as and when, with evidence backed up by SAGE to do it at the right time. People will have a debate about that, but you've got to trust almost the advice you're given. Um, so it didn't really worry me. I can see why others were, but it was fine. And, you know, I, I did get to see how clean the hospitals were and how and, and the efforts going in to make sure those areas were clean. But it didn't, it didn't really worry me. And to be honest, I mean, even so, somebody's got to do it. And those staff are going in every day. And okay, if they are, you know, I, I was never, I, I, yeah, again, to be clear, I was never in contact with anyway, anyone close to COVID patients themselves. Um, but, you know, people going out on the front line were having to risk their lives. I was turning up and giving out scrubs for two and a half hours, you know, three times a week. It's hardly... Uh, it's hardly going over to, over the top of the song. Fair enough. Well, obviously, you're working with extraordinary people, you know, doctors, nurses, etc. What did you witness during your time there? What what did what did you see? Uh, what was interesting, I suppose, was when I started. It was it was late April. We'd seen. I think by this point, we had seen the peak of it. We didn't know that would be the case, but there was certainly. A, a bit of tension around. And it was certainly, you know, very, not as though it wasn't a serious job, it was very, very serious at that point. And, you know, you did see staff who were quite, you know, tense. I can't say sort of particularly upset, but certainly quite tense. And, you know, you do get to see how hospital works, how it runs. But, you know, I didn't see patients being treated, um, not for COVID anyway. Um, the, the ward, um, the, the floor we were on, uh, was used for COVID patients at one point, then was converted back to its original 
use. Um, it's difficult to say apart from that, you know, the, that tension did seem to release. And we did see a point, again, London, where I am, got the pandemic first, you know, its first first hit in the country. We, you know, so it was also ahead of the curve in a way. So when it was still pretty rampant in the rest of the country before this recent resurgence that we've seen, it had, you know, quietened down quite a bit in London. So you did see staff who were designated to treat COVID patients who were, you know, they, not they didn't have anything to do, but certainly it's a lot quieter than it had been. And it was nice to them get a bit of a break. And I see actually when some of them were able to take time off, so you wouldn't see them for a week or so, because that's exactly what they needed to do. Because after what they've been through, they, you know, time off is the least they deserved. Exactly, exactly. What did you learn finally from this experience? I, th- I think the thing that I got out of it, which isn't to answer the question you've asked, but it's the one I, I will try and ask or answer. Yeah, of course. Um, I, you know, I gained a huge amount from it. You know, in terms of, you know, I'd had a pretty difficult end to last year for a variety of reasons. And it gave me, it was that sense of purpose, which I felt I'd lost a bit. It gave me that. It was good for my mental health to be able to get out of the house and to be able to go and speak to people and to have, you know, colleagues again you'd be working with, to have a person feel like contributing. There's this massive, awful pandemic that's probably the biggest event of our lifetime. You know, I'm 27, but you can speak to people double or triple my age. It's the biggest thing that's happened in their lifetime as well. It was great to be able to help, and it helped my, my, helped my mental health no end. Um, and it was brilliant. It was, great. it was a privilege to be able to do. It was, I worked alongside some great and fantastic people, and it was an honour. And we had, on the final day, the final shift, genuinely, and, and the word moving is really overused, but it was one of the most moving experiences of my life to have 20, 20 or 30 um, members of staff from the floor we were on come out of the wards briefly for a quick presentation type thing and, and, and a thank you. And they applauded us, you know, the three volunteers who were left. And it, it was moving because these are people who've been on the front line saving lives. As I said, I turned up and gave scrubs out for two and a half hours a week, three times a week. Well, I, it, I'm, not, I'm not on the front line. I'm not saving lives. And to get that applause and to get that recognition was genuinely really, really moving. And I said at the end, it was it had been it's been a privilege, and we are ready to go back if we're needed. But in a way, I hope that doesn't happen, because if it does happen, that means we are back in the really dark place that we were in March and April, and the wider meaning of that is pretty gloomy. So I hope I don't have to go back. I hope that recall doesn't come. But if it does, I would be there, boots blacked, happy to help. If you could sum up, this would be the last question, if you could sum up what the NHS means to you in one sentence, what would that be? Um, one of the greatest public institutions in British history. Harry Taylor, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That was Dan McLaughlin speaking with Harry Taylor. And that's all we've got time for this week on Alone Together. But don't forget to check out um, some of our other episodes, looking at everything from dating in the pandemic to parenting and the return to school to trying to live sustainably and so on. There's so much great content there. Um, so do check it out on Entail and all other usual podcast streaming platforms. Thank you to our guests and thank you for listening to our podcast. So stay safe, stay positive, stay informed and stay tuned. 
This has been a laudable production from the newsrooms of Birmingham Live, the Edinburgh Evening News and the Manchester Evening News. You can download Alone Together wherever you listen to your podcasts, but for exclusive, interactive, immersive content, download the Entail app for iOS and Android. See you next time.